0: Welcome to episode 243 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with Nathan Smith, Michael O'Malley, Josh Baker, Hagen Smith. And in today's episode, we'll be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one and in part two, we'll be continuing our Truth and Fiction in the South series with 1976's Harlan County USA and 1979's Norma Ray. But real quickly, uh, Hagen Smith is joining the podcast for the first time. Hagen, thank you so much for jumping on and and chatting with us for this one. Thank you all for having me. Yeah, we're going to have two Smiths on this one. I didn't realize that until literally when you said your name. It'll be fun. (laughs) Um, Let's go ahead and dig into movies that we saw this week. I I'll i kick it off real quickly. I wanted to hit some of the uh, st- films that I saw at the Chattanooga Film Festival this past week, um, and I'll try to do that as quickly and as efficiently as possible. The first is a double feature. It's a, it's a two-part uh, film called A Bread Factory. The first part called... For the sake of gold, uh, pretty much picks up the story. It's this—the bread factory is a arts um, theater that's been running in this small community of Checkford uh, for the past 40 years. Uh, When when the movie picks up, uh, it's the people who run it, Dorothea and Greta, are suddenly now having to fight for its survival as uh, these performance artists from China have come to the town and built this this giant, uh, elaborate complex next to the theater. have started to uh to uh kind of show this shift in uh and how the the town is is receiving its culture uh rather than from this local arts theater it's it's now getting it from this much more um commercialized uh venue that the that these two performance artists have brought in um and so the mm-hmm. so the entire t- runtime of the movie is dorothea and greta trying to uh one put on a a Play that they are are trying to to do as kind of a uh, last ditch effort for the local theater, but also trying to work the local political system in order to secure votes so that they don't have to lose the funding that they might be uh, possibly losing because of the the school board's decision to take the uh, the arts, the local school arts fund, that is really kind of the the pun intended bread and butter of the bread factory. And uh, and shifting that into, back into the the school the school fund so that they can use it for other things, and the the film and it's it was really funny. I described I told my mom that I went and saw this and saw it for four hours because both parts are two hours each, and she and I described it with this synopsis, and she just kind of you know eyes glossed over and was just like okay uh, <laughs> but I it's an incredibly endearing just uh, deeply humanistic film to both parts of them the first part is actually incredibly funny it's very witty it's it's uh, uh, just some really light-hearted uh, really funny jolting comedy uh, the one I can think of off the top of my head is Janine garofalo plays this kind of bitter director that uh, the bread factory has like these these artists that kind of come through and they do like a talk and they'll show whatever, you know, their craft is. And then they'll do like this class with uh, some of the children uh, from the schools who uh, who come through. Janine Garofalo's character is doing this class with these kids and she's like screaming at them as if they were like college, uh, aged students or something, or, or, or almost like a football team, uh, in like a high school locker room. Like she's just, she's just yelling at them, um, over what color is, is appearing in this whatever still she is. She's pulling from a film, um, and there's there's just kind of a countless really comedic moments that you wouldn't really expect from this film that kind of have, is is part Jacques Rivette and part uh, Robert Altman because it just meanders around this community. You get to k- kind of know all of these different faces and these different personalities that re- really rely on the bread factory as this um, as this kind of uh, as just kind of this beacon of not only culture but community. Like it, you, you you feel that. Um, shutting, you know, having to shut the doors to this place is less. Uh, you won't be able to see this community play, or you won't be able to see this, uh, you know, whatever silly thing they come up with. But you're losing a, a kind of community home to uh, that, that just kind of breathes through uh, a lot of the people who are who are kind of fo- you know coming here most often. And then you you shift this into a bread factory part two, which is walk with me a while. This one really this it's really focused on the play that's about to happen you also have uh these deeply surrealist um moments as the town becomes uh Becomes starts to get invaded by these tourists and text these tech startup workers that we never get really a uh, idea of what specific tech thing they're here to uh, create. But they're constantly on their phones and at times will uh, be focusing on typing something on their cell phones, and then will stand up and begin tap dancing to the to like the clicks of their uh, phone keys, which is and while they're doing this, nobody everybody is just kind of around them living their lives and not really paying attention at all uh, the guy who introduced the film at the at the film festival described this as twin peaks the return but it takes away it takes off all the horror and just focuses on the the uh the folksy uh <laughs> people of the of the area um i'm i'm curious to hear people uh talk more about a uh, bread factory it is it is kind of a bizarre movie to look at when you when you think of it as this four hour uh endeavor but there's it's you desperately have to see it in both parts It, it kind of it requires that because it really just meshes together as this portrait of a community trying to hold on to that word um but is being kind of withered away by just the tides of time and the tides of uh capitalism causing them to become much uh much more ranged than they, I think they, they have much more of a range than they, I think they really wanted to. And, and while the push to diversify their, uh, you know, what they're, what they're seeing is, is something that's commendable. They also, it, it also kind of is seen as this way in order to, uh, to push out people who, um, who have been long staples in the town that they don't view as being, uh, all that worthwhile anymore. And it's, uh, I don't know. It has these really bittersweet melancholic moments that to it, but I would recommend a bread factory. Uh, it's directed by Patrick Wang and, um, I think it just recently got distribution. So it's, so it should be coming out, uh, more widely available later this year. Uh, grasshopper films just pick it, picked it up. So if you have a chance to see it, um, I'd recommend it. It's a, it's a, it's a nice little film and one I'll probably revisit, uh, definitely before the end of the year. The next one I want to talk about real quickly is hail Satan. Uh, I I know it, it garnered a lot of, uh, chatter out of sundance it's the uh, the documentary by director penny lane which is honestly one of the top 10 names of a filmmaker of all time uh this hail satan follows the the rise of the satanic temple which is less uh cutting chickens throats and you know drinking the blood in order to provoke crowds and more uh becoming a radical political movement in order to uh inf- you know try to take down more some of the more controversial religious movements in American history um, and th- I, the, the one that they kind of use as a through line throughout the film is uh, the Arkansas uh, the battle with Arkansas state capital over the placing of the Ten Commandments on the Capitol grounds um, and it's, it's it's an interesting trajectory that the film takes it, at, for, at the beginning it kind of is presenting it as yes it's it, it kind of started as somewhat of a performance art it started as somewhat of just to kind of, for pretty much to fuck with these people and kind of uh, incite their rage. There's there's one moment uh, early on where they uh, have a a uh, they have like a. Uh, they have a gay couple and a lesbian couple and they're at the grave of the, of the mother of the guy who runs the Westboro Baptist church. And they show the two couples like kissing over the mother's grave. And the Westboro Baptist church is trying to like sue the satanic temple for doing that. And a lot of their early stuff seems like it's just kind of trying to provoke the people uh, in order to provoke them. And then as you see over time, it becomes much more politically focused. It's much more uh, trying to find this religious plurality to, uh, to the, uh, the american political system and then it, it shows kind of what uh a organization or a movement becomes when you become larger and larger and larger and that's be, that's you start to resemble more of an organization rather than just this kind of radical movement of people like-minded people and um i think it's kind of interesting as the movie kind of comes to a close the these members of the satanic temple who kind of kick this off trying to become uh this this kind of sea change for a lot of uh, a lot of different issues, and bec- uh, in, in, in kind of a, a alternative to what we would see is the uh, Christian hegemony of uh, of religion they kind of become their own, uh, organization in, a, in, in to an extent they have this hierarchy of, of people that, uh, you know, they, they have these seven tenants that they follow and, and you see them and you, you know, it's tough to disagree with what they're trying to do. Um, but at the same time it becomes much, it, it, it becomes the, almost a version of the organization that they're revolting against at the beginning. And so I think it's just a, kind of an interesting portrayal of how, um, how movements like this work, especially in, in the age of social media and, and, and the internet in 2019. Um, Hail Satan, though, I think it's coming out at the theaters pretty soon, so I would I would say that check it out at your local theater. It's a, a deeply funny movie. Um, a lot of, the, the first part of it, the first uh, scene of it where they're trying to uh, uh, protest the Florida State Capitol against Rick Scott feels like a clip from a Christopher Guest movie, so... If if that's your vibe, I would I would definitely recommend checking it out. Um, but there'll be more from the Chattanooga Film Festival. Reed Ramsey and I che- uh, went there this past weekend, so check that out on the website uh, next week. But I'm gonna toss it over to you, Nathan. You uh, I'm gonna you first. You saw a, a lot of films by the director R- Larry Cohen, who recently passed away.
1: Yeah, um, Larry Cohen, uh is an interesting genre filmmaker who unfortunately um as you just said zach passed away recently um i had seen one of his films before he died um but have since his death been trying to catch up a little bit and, and fill in some gaps in my viewing um because his movies uh were a lot of them were sort of on my watch list and um were of interest to me um he is i guess maybe if you're not familiar with his work uh he's maybe the best analogy is he's sort of a george romero kind of figure um he actually is about the same age as romero and they were both growing up in the bronx at around the same time um but um, you know, they both are sort of known for doing genre movies and, and particularly horror movies in the case of Romero. Um, Larry Cohen is also known for doing horror movies, but has done a number of different genres. Um, but they're both sort of, both of those guys are kind of known for infusing these low budget <coughs> exploitation kind of movies um, with, uh, you know, sort of infusing them with social commentary and with a sort of political. Um, Edge and a, uh, you know, a really sort of a keen critical eye. I feel like that, you know, maybe other films of the same budget or same tier don't have um but what makes Larry Cohen a little bit different from George Romero is that Larry Cohen came out of TV um in the 1950s he was writing for shows like um The Defenders and The Fugitive um and he actually had a little bit of a working relationship with Alfred Hitchcock um and what wrote two screenplays that were um originally going to be directed by Hitchcock but unfortunately he did not make those films um, one of the those screenplays later became the movie Phone Booth, starring Colin Farrell and uh, Joel Schumacher. Um, so Larry Cohn has kind of had a weird career where he's largely known as a screenwriter, um, writing movies like Phone Booth and Cellular with Jason Statham and uh, Abel Farrar's Body Snatchers um, and the Maniac Cop movies. You know, he's, he's worked in a lot of different genres in sort of, B, you know, B-picture status. Um, his... Uh, own filmography is is all kind of all over the place um in terms of genre and and um in terms of you know style even um his first movie uh which is on Amazon Prime is called The Bone um and it stars uh, Yafet Kodo as this criminal who invades the home of a a couple that he thinks is wealthy in Beverly Hills, he, he takes them hostage and he demands their money. He soon finds out that they actually don't have any money and that they're just sort of um, getting by on appearances. Uh, but he, like, forces the husband to go to the bank to get out everything they own. Um, and while the husband is out, um, he and the wife sort of begin, like, flirting. like. It, they, they kind of uh, it's like a uh, he, he is sort of trying to threaten her at first but then she sort of like turns the tables and starts to seduce him and they uh, get together um, in, a, in a kind of a strange twist and then the husband like, Instead of going to the bank, like meet some random woman and um, like has sex with her, and it becomes this like strange sort of like relationship class satire, um, but with with a lot about race in there too. Um, and it's it it it's a film that is sort of marketed as more of a sort of down and dirty exploitation movie, but it's actually more of a black comedy, and it has a very sort of like like new hollywood um introspective um kind of interior worldview um, but it's very different from the other movies he's made um, kind of some of the other highlights uh, of his filmography some of the other movies that I've enjoyed have been cue the winged serpent um, which is like begins as a police procedural um, with Richard Roundtree who's mis- most famous for playing shaft um, people in New York City are being plucked out of the sky and off of rooftops um, so it just sort of starts as like almost a sort of TV-like kind of cop movie, um, but then it, there, it becomes revealed that um, it there's, like, this dragon um, at, in the top of a skyscraper who is the winged serpent of the Aztec god Quetzalcoatl who has been summoned by this, like, crazy rich guy who's obsessed with Aztec artifacts, and that this, like, dragon is the one who is, like, snatching people out of the sky. Um, so it's, like, a cop movie, but also like a sort of a weird monster movie. Um, kind of similar, but very different also is uh, this movie God Told Me To, which I think is on um, Shudder right now. Um, and Cue the Winged Serpent is also on Amazon Prime. A lot of these movies, because they're just, you know, sort of like weird little B movies, they're actually pretty accessible on on different streaming platforms. Um, but God Told Me To also begins as like a, almost like a TV kind of cop you know, thing, Um, but it then becomes about this, like, weird rash of serial killings where just, like, random, you know, seemingly ordinary people are committing murder and saying that God told them to do it, and then it turns out that, like, there's this androgynous, like, antichrist figure who is commanding all of these people to like go out and commit murder and so it turns from this just like crime movie into some strange vision of the apocalypse um so yeah um if you like a, a kind of a, just like a quick 90 minute genre movie that's like very wacky and sort of shifts between multiple genres but also um a lot of times you know the movies are sort of about about class and about um, kind of corruption um, you have also uh, his movie Special Effects which stars Zoe Lund um, from the movie Miss 45 um, which is re- like a weird take on Vertigo um, which has a lot to say about like the voyeurism of cinema um, and and a lot about kind of gender and, and uh, sexual politics and it's sort of like a v- trash or even version of a Brian De Palma movie um so I highly recommend Larry Cohen if you like if you like genre movies um you know, if you like Romero, if you like Carpenter, I, I really recommend checking him out.
0: You mentioned those two names. I feel like those are probably the go-to – the ones that people think about. I mean do you – just kind of watching his movies, do you feel like – I guess what's the – what reason do you feel like uh, Larry Cohen kind of gets forgotten when it comes to that? Or does he get forgotten? Maybe I'm just ignorant to it.
1: Well, I think – no, I think he does get forgotten because I think the thing is is that he, did, he refused a genre. You know, like Romero, Craven, Carpenter, all those guys – you know, didn't did do movies that weren't horror movies, but they were mostly known as horror guys and celebrated as horror guys, um, and they like embraced that. And Larry Cohen did a. Did a, a short, you know, TV movie for the Masters of Horror series, but he like refused that title. He did not want to be described as a horror filmmaker, even though his like most successful movie was the It's Alive series, which is a sort of like Rosemary's Baby kind of thing. Um, which I actually haven't seen that one yet, but that's like next on my list. Um, and he also did Black Caesar, the the black exploitation movie, um, which is like also probably his other most famous movie. Um, you know, he just kind of like refused to to, to pick one. Job genre. So, you know, he did black exploitation and horror and crime movies and, and you know, all kinds of things. And, you know, he was also working a lot in T V. So I feel like he even more than those guys sort of embraced his status as just kind of like a journeyman guy doing a job. So I think that's why the movies are a little bit smaller stature. You know, he he had a number of films later in his career that went straight to video. Um, And so he just sort of got lost in the margins and he also stopped making movies. In the '90s, Um, the last thing he did was um, the Masters of the last thing directed was that Masters of Horror thing in 2006. I mean, he you know he kept writing movies, wrote Phone Booth, Cellular, all these other movies, um, and was still working you know until his death. Um, So he was just like you know, just, he was just ultimately just a guy doing a job, which like, I love those kind of directors, you know, who like are doing really unassuming low key work and then interesting things sort of emerge out of that. So
2: I will say, uh, my memories of blockbuster, uh, in the ages of uh, gone by, um, the only movie of his I've seen is the stuff. And I didn't see it. Um, I didn't see it because of, uh, his name attached to it. I just had very vivid memories of, uh, that poster, uh, on like VHS tapes in, in Blockbuster and looking through his other movies, I kind of have those same weird memories of like, you know, the, the cover for, um, uh, the dragon one Q, um, like as kind of just like those things that you would see, like at a video rental store. And I had no concept of that they were all made by the same person, but, um, you know, maybe that's, this is like trans genre thing, but um i don't feel like like these movies all seem kind of familiar to me maybe just from that like you know vhs rack culture
1: yeah that's the thing is like i feel like they're all sort of they have these sort of like there's are such quintessential genre movies in that way and that they're so just like the posters are evocative they have that sort of familiar feel you know you feel like maybe you've seen it um but they're also always sort of unexpected and and do different things. Um it's very interesting because um the the film critic and theorist Robin Wood um in the 70s who's like you know one of the first film theorists to really write with a really good uh, eye towards contemporary Amer- American horror films of the 70s and 80s. Um, he really loved Larry Cohen and like said that Larry Cohen was like the best American horror filmmaker. So it's very interesting to me like reading that uh, his essays recently and seeing somebody in the 1970s like really holding up Larry Cohen, but somehow that didn't really stick and like that didn't really become the popular opinion. Um, And now, you know, in the past few years, like I'd started to hear about him, but I hadn't checked out his movies until unfortunately, you know, he died. Um, But they're all, you know, like I said, many of them are actually pretty accessible um, on Amazon Prime, you know, they sort of are, you know, are there on the video stores of the internet, so...
0: You had one more movie, though?
1: Oh, yeah. I, I'll, real quickly, I will just say a word about what is my favorite movie of the year so far. Um, it's a little film called Relaxer by Joel Potricus, who is an independent filmmaker from Michigan. Um, his like biggest movie thus far has been the movie Buzzard, which came out in 2014, which is about this like temp worker who goes on this wild, violent spree, um, like taunting people with a Freddy Krueger... Blade glove. Um it's it's just like made
2: out of like a power like a the power glove from Nintendo. yes Am I remembering that
1: Yeah. One? They are these just like he makes these very tiny kind of regional um flair sort of movies about I guess for lack of a better word, kind of like slacker sort of guys who seem stuck in a different era who basically uh, waste their time like doing idiotic shit. Um, there's all this sort of pop culture um, you know, flotsam and jetsam sort of scattered across these movies like, you know, Michael, you just mentioned the Power Glove and, you know, the Freddy Krueger Glove and all these sort of like reference points um, are, are sort of alluded to, but it's not in a kind of a like Easter egg way. It's just sort of like this is just the sort of decaying world of the 21st century you know, um, and this movie is like his most sort of uh, maybe like darkest and disgusting and most depraved movie yet. Um, relaxer. Uh, also stars the the same guy as the lead in Buzzard, Joshua Birch. He plays a character in this movie named Abby, whose older brother basically just, like, taunts him into doing different like food-related challenges. So, like, the movie begins, and his brother is making him chug cups of milk, like, one every few minutes until he drinks an entire jug of milk. Um, And Abby refuses to leave the couch. Um, He's, like... In his boxers for the entire film and does not leave the couch for the entire 90 minute length of the movie. The movie also does not leave his apartment for the entire length of that movie. Um, But somehow it becomes this like insane deranged trippy Stargate thing inside one room by the end of the film. and it takes place in the shadow of Y2K. Um, Abby becomes addicted to this Pac-Man challenge to unlock this like secret 257th level of Pac-Man. Um, so he literally spends months on this couch playing Pac-Man over time. The seasons change, the world darkens, um, the apocalypse grows near, but he keeps playing Pac-Man. Um, and I was really just like absolutely gobsmacked, like out of left field by this movie. Um, um, I had sort of liked Buzzard. I was like a little on the fence about it, but I mostly kind of enjoyed it, uh, uh, if any, uh, you know, in concept more than anything. But Relaxer is almost on this, is on this like insane slow cinema wavelength where it speaks this like very trashy, like American pop culture vernacular, like characters in this movie drink Fago, you know, and are talking about video games and, uh, you know like shitty Hollywood movies but it is like almost closer to Pedro Costa or a uh, pitch uponnger or other cool than like anything I've ever seen from America. Um, it's all, almost kind of like Pedro Costa's ready player one. Um, but it also is like in a very intense body horror very intense physical performance from Joshua Burge. Um, he goes to insane lengths to avoid leaving his his couch he like builds crazy contraptions to grab bowls and things um it's like a very disgusting and a and a very uh kind of repulsive movie but just like the intensity of his performance and the way that he just fully commits with his body to it just really um just like uh I was not expecting to like this movie as much as I did. Um, it's just, like, very imaginative and very, uh, that's just kind of, like, in I don't know. Like, I, it's it's ends up also becoming about climate change. Like, I don't know. It, it's just, a it, it, I wasn't expecting it to be kind of serious in the way it is. Like, it's not self-serious, but it is very much sort of thinking about, our time and and whatever you know, and our and our moment, even if it's set um, in 1999 in 2000, um, it's you know it's it's a very fresh take on on science fiction. It's. Um, does a lot m- more with one room than you know most people do with with buildings um and a- every camera movement feels like very calculated and very studied and very planned um and meticulous in a way that i found like very engaging you know not it, it it almost feels a little like a play um like you could make a sort of theatrical adaptation of this because it's set in the single space and it also has this very sort of um Kind of elliptical uh, sort of narrative, Um, but it's also like very visually engaging, and Joel Potricis has really thought about what he's doing with his camera. Um, So I I believe it it got like the briefest of theatrical runs, which is just a shame. Um, But I believe it's on VOD right now, and. Um it's distributed by Oscilloscope Laboratories and their movies have a tendency to pop up on Can- Canopy and um Amazon Prime, you know. So it will be I think definitely viewable um within the year, you know, within the next few months and I definitely recommend you check it out cuz it's my favorite movie of the year so far. So
3: it Sounds like it has it all.
1: Yeah, I like it premiered at festivals last year and then just sort of like came out for a second and
3: well you sold it to me i'm ready
1: yeah it's uh it's like extremely intense don't eat don't eat while you're watching it that's my advice um (laughs) yeah
0: so ash i'm gonna toss it over to you you had a movie uh you all wanted to talk about
3: yeah um so we watched uh hagan and i watched a not so new movie um Recently, we watched Shame. It came out in 2011. It's directed by Steve McQueen and written also by Steve McQueen and Abby Morgan. It stars Michael Fassbender as Brandon, a dude living in um, New York who has some very intense sexual needs and habits. And um, basically, the plot of the film gets going when his sister who's played by carrie mulligan comes to stay with him and this is we learn very quickly is like a very unwelcome visitation um they have a very interesting relationship and we sort of get to see michael fassbender's character um attempt it you know relationships and intimacy throughout but his sort of like sexual drive and um uh habits uh sort of inhibit him from intimacy and it's sort of like a really devastating um movie about this like really intense um guy (laughs) with his 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 life um, we watched it because Hagen is going on this journey with Michael Fassbender. Not a literal journey, but...
4: I've been on this journey. Um, I do have a big crush on Fassbender. I, uh, it's something about his... He has a certain kind of edge to him. And also his teeth, I think, and his, his entire mouth area is very interesting to watch. Um He does great work with his facial muscles and his teeth during the, um, there's a, a, I don't, it's not the climax of the film, but there's a a threesome scene in here that actually um, turns out to be very emotionally affecting that he does um, some of the best facial expressions that I've seen in in a while. Um, But generally, I think he's kind of, He's, like, the kind of European that Americans want, I think, as an actor. And perhaps I'm uh, falling prey to that, um, that allure somehow. <laughs> um, so I, I appreciated this film because it starts out um, with him on the subway. And it's you're getting a flashback that is... Um, sort of cross cutting between all these different um events in his life mostly him just getting out of bed and like pissing um but um he's sort of giving this uh this girl the eye on the subway and it becomes pretty clear that it's like predatory like she's engaged and he like chases her up um to the street and it's in this very unwelcome way. Um, but you're, it's sort of like, oh, like this is um, the character that I'm supposed to um, observe and identify with. And um, generally, I think the film is really successful with this because it manages to be, in my opinion, really um, humanistic and, and moral, uh, but without being... In the universe of the film, um, completely didactic. I mean, you you certainly know that he's suffering because of this addiction, and you know that it has consequences, but and and you know that he's predatory, but um, but the film doesn't reduce his complexity, which I think is great for the the subject that it's studying, um, that of sex addiction, or you could even broaden it or and say something like. Um, you know toxic masculinity or or just like a raging uh, masculinity which i think is really um refreshing because you hear so much dis- discourse about um that subject
3: yeah there's just one scene like th- it was a movie that like it was really difficult to watch in parts because it was so like emotionally intense um but, and then there are lighter scenes throughout, like, there's, um, a scene where he goes on a date, and it's, like, a very funny scene, because there's, like, a really awkward waiter who keeps interrupting, it's, like, one take, it's, like, a very long take, this scene, and, like, the waiter keeps coming in and interrupting their conversation, and the conversation itself is really complicated, because, um... We we know the character better than his date knows him. And, um, uh, like, the heavy scenes stay with you because they're heavy and they're really intense. But also, like, even the light scenes in this movie are things that I still think about, like, very frequently. Like, this random conversation that they have on the date is something that I think about pretty regularly. I think the writing in this movie was just, like, really stellar. Um, yeah, I think it was really good. Nathan, you said you really like this movie, right?
1: No, I actually don't like this movie. No. Uh, Zach was being sarcastic. Um, yeah.
3: Tear it apart.
1: I'm so sorry. Uh, I don't know. I, um... I will say that when I watched this movie, it was uh, at, like, 9 a.m. in a class in which I was sitting in an office chair. Um, So not really the ideal environment to watch this movie. Um, But I just... uh, I feel like sometimes, I don't know, Steve McQueen, like, bites off a little too much uh, for me. And I feel like sometimes in this movie... There are certain ways where I feel like it, you know, it sort of, can conf- like, it conflates to me what seem like are different issues, like his addiction to pornography, like masturbation, uh, intercourse. Like, I feel like those are all sort of, like, different kinds of things, and the movie just sort of blurs them all together, Um in a way that I didn't really find super effective, um, but I also think that you know Michael Fassbender, like I, uh, uh Hagen, like I totally know what you mean. Like he, he has such a like, um, you know, a, a presence and and such a like gravitas, you know, and um, and so he, like he is sort of ideal for this role because he's such a like perfect physical type that. Um, to have him be this, like, suffering, wounded character. I think he's kind of made for that. Um, Because sometimes it's, you know, I don't know, it's fun to watch beautiful people uh, suffer. Uh, I don't know, so.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I get what you're saying about that. And, like, there was one, like, very prolonged scene of Carrie Mulligan singing a song That I really didn't enjoy at all. (laughs) I didn't think she was very good. And also, like, it was way too long. And I don't know, like, what it did, really, to further the plot besides, like, Michael Fassbender sheds a tear. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, there was some loose ends, for sure. But I still think about the the date Mm -hmm. scene a lot. (laughs) I thought it was very funny.
0: Well, I think Shame is pretty readily available if you're looking for it or curious. Um, So I guess do not watch it at 9 a.m. in an office chair is what Nathan is is saying. Yeah, don't do that. We're going to take a short break, though. We will be back continuing our Truth and Fiction in the South series with Harlan County USA and Norma Ray after this break. Hey, Cinematary
5: listeners, Andrew here. During this break in the show, I'd like to mention that Cinematary does... Want your money. You can give us your money at patreon.com/slash where you can chip in a small fee of about $5 a month, you know, the price of a fancy coffee, in exchange for shout-outs in every episode, the opportunity to choose movies we cover on the show, and bonus episodes every month, in which we talk about more movies as well as other miscellaneous stuff. In the past, we've just been humbly asking for you to share the show and engage with us. And we would still love for you to do those things. You can tweet us at Cinematary. Send us an email uh, at Z-A-C-H at Cinematary.com. Leave us a review on iTunes, all that stuff. But Cemetery has grown a ton in the past few years due to the hard work of a bunch of writers, myself included, who haven't been paid for their labor, which is sadly a pretty normal thing. We record things and write things for free. You listen to and read them for free. And the only people getting paid are like Apple and Google, which is depressing. So if you appreciate what we do, if you feel like there's some sort of value being exchanged here and you'd like more of it, help us normalize paying people by going to patreon.com slash Cinematary and chipping in $5 a month. We would truly appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Now let's get back to the show.
0: back with part two of episode 243 of Cinematary. In this part, we will be continuing our Truth and Fiction in the South series with 1979's Norma Ray and 1976's Harlan County, USA. Norma Ray was directed by Martin Ritt from a script by Harriet Frank Jr. and Irving Rappage. The film stars Sally Field, Beau Bridges, and Ron Liebman. Like a lot of her family before her, Norma Ray works at the local textile mill where the pay is hardly uh, worth it with the long hours and lousy working conditions, but after hearing a rousing speech by labor activist Reuben, Norma is inspired to rally her fellow workers behind the cause of unionism. Her decision rankles with her family, especially her fiancé Sunny, and provokes no shortage of contempt from her employers. The story is based on Crystal Lee Sutton's life as a textile worker in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina where the battle for the workers' union took place against a J.P. Stevens Textiles mill. Her actual protest in the mill is the scene in the film where she she writes the sign union, writes on the sign union, and stands on her work table until all mach- machines are silent. Although Sutton was fired from her job, the mill was unionized, and she later went to work as an organizer for the textile union. When the producer showed director Martin read an excerpt from the 1973 article detailing Sutton's journey, he immediately fell in love with Crystal Lee. Problems arose in obtaining permission to depict the story's real-life subjects. In the summer of 1977, the producers optioned the screen rights to Henry Leafman's book on Crystal Lee Sutton. As part of the process, the author mailed Crystal Lee a release form offering the token price of $1. Naive about the legality, she signed the form and mistakenly returned it with $1. However, North Carolina law required that the subject of a film portrayal provide explicit consent, irrespective of any literary arrangement. Uh, Ironic enough, uh, Barbara Koppel, the documentary filmmaker who won an Academy Award for Harlan County, USA, was pursuing her own negotiations with Crystal Lee. In November 1977, Crystal Lee signed an agreement with Koppel for a feature film about her life and later approved the script written by Stuart Werbin and Todd Meyer. It didn't seem like anything came out of that, though. Uh, Without authorization from Crystal Lee and the others, the script was changed, resulting in a story based on a, quote, fictionalized composite of several such women involved in the unionizing of southern textile mills, as described by Ritt. During the uh, consultation with Crystal Lee's attorney, the producers agreed to alter actual names, events, locations, ages, and dates, but Ritt refused to compromise on two issues. The descriptions of Norma Ray as promiscuous and the scene where she reveals her indiscretions to her children. For Ritt, these po- two points were essential to demonstrate the character's growth. According to a interview in the LA times with Sally Field, the casting experience was the first time she did not have to promote herself. Ritt requested her on the basis of her Emmy award winning performance in 1976 nbc miniseries sybil and she accepted before reading the script actresses jane fonda jill clayburn and jill clayberg and marcia mason turned down the part of norma ray in december of 2017 it was announced that norma ray was being adapted into a stage musical with roseanne cash set to compose the score In the the 1979 New York Times, uh, they reviewed the film saying, Because so much of today's American labor movement seems to be too big and complicated to be easily understood, too rich to have time for the impoverished, and so powerful that its interests are as vested as those of any industry, stories about the early days of trade unionism have become expressions of a deep seated romantic longing. When the issues dividing labor and management became clearly drawn, there is nothing quite as satisfying as collective effort to fight oppression. Workers are children of nature, born without sin. Bosses are devils. In such times, faith can flourish. Salvation is not an abstract concept. It's a three-year contract. These are sentiments that Martin Ritt, the director, and Irving Ravitch and Harriet Frank Jr., his screenwriters, understand and fervently evoke in this often-stirring new film, Norma Ray. The Variety in 1978 said, This unlikely pairing of Jewish radicalism and Southern miasma is the core of N- Norma Ray and is made real and touching by the individual performances of Liebman and Field. The pacing is fresh and never laggard, and Norma Ray virtually hums right along. In 1979, the Washington Post said, The, directors of Norma Ray, the director of Norma Ray, Martin Ritt, and the writers have given this story an early 20th century intensity and optimism. The idealism shown here betrays a yearning. Not only for the simplicity of the old class struggle, but for the intellectual's faith in reform. Um, so let's dig into Norma Ray before uh, moving on to the documentary pairing. Um, <laughs> Michael, I'm gonna kick off with you just because you were you didn't get to say too much in in part one. Um, had you seen Norma Ray before? I mean, what was what was, what was your idea or perception of this uh, kind of narrative version of? Uh, you know things that you know happen in real life for these characters or at least the the composites of these characters
2: i went in almost entirely blind i mean i knew that it was uh sally fields and i knew it was about a uh, you know the labor movement and um a protest but uh you know i i actually knew very little about this movie just besides that um and i i liked it quite a bit um i think there is one of the critics you read that said that the pace never lags and i there were times when I thought the pace actually did kind of lag. Um, but like overall, uh, it's it's pretty, pretty stirring stuff. Um, I, um, I have been thinking about it a lot and we can maybe get into this more with the documentary section, but, um, there, there's like a poignancy about both of these movies and, and, um, maybe the, you know, the critic that was talking about kind of like looking back on like bygone years with maybe rose colored glasses makes it kind of interesting. Um, because now this is like doubly uh, removed from our current era, right? So it was like a period piece in the in the 70s, I guess. Uh, and then, well, not too much of a period piece, I guess. But, um, but now, like, looking back on it, I mean, a lot has changed about uh, labor uh, since uh, 1979. And I just kept thinking, like, you know, uh, about, like, for instance, in Tennessee, you know, all the the right to work legislation and, and just thinking about like, would this actually work? Um, and one of the things that kind of struck me in the movie, you know, they have the big, uh, ballot counting at the end, uh, the ballot counting scene. And it's a pretty narrow, uh, squeak by, I think they only win by like a hundred votes or something like that. You know, it's maybe like 60, 40, as far as like the, uh, employees of the mill go for to, to unionize. And, uh, I, I I think about that a lot because I'm a teacher in a teachers' union that I, I sometimes feel is pretty ineffectual and, and symbolic, um, partially because of like the lack of uh, engagement or or broad like systematic uh, buy-in uh, for the for the union, uh, and also partially because of some of those like kind of changes in the political climate. And so there's like a nostalgic element about the movie to me. Um, Watching it, obviously not like personally nostalgic because I wasn't around in 1979, but like a, uh, uh, I guess I guess in the same way that you know people look back to like bygone radical eras and kind of like you know imagine grafting it onto the present day, I kind of felt that with this movie, where, um, you know, there, you know, some powerful union from from the northeast comes in and is like, hey, we're going to help you create a union, and I, there's just part of me that doesn't. I can't imagine that happening now, you know, like I know teachers union from, you know, Chicago or New York is going to come to Tennessee and be like, hey, y'all, let's empower your union. And I don't know, on that, on that element, it was like a little bit like poignant and uh, interesting, like just on a personal level for me.
0: Yeah. And I'll be curious to kind of dig into that because that was something I was thinking about, especially in Harlan County as some, you know, just kind of relating it to the to like 2019, the current age, um, so I, yeah, I definitely want to circle back to that, um, Hagen. I, I kind of want to t- turn to you. I mean, you. You mentioned before we started recording that this was your first time seeing this, and this you actually kind of grew up uh, kind of near Harlan County, near this area. I mean, do you have? Well, I guess what was your what was your reaction to the film as as somebody who grew up in the in the region and uh, probably knew very similar people to the people portrayed in in Norma Ray?
4: Yeah, my my first reaction to Harlan County was just nostalgia. Um, just watching and, and, and listening to the people was um, really refreshing for me. You know, I think that any time that there's a um, insular community of people, you inevitably these really colorful ways of communicating develop, and um, and it's certainly the case with the the Appalachian culture. Um, I, I don't know, just like obviously the the film carries a lot of. Um, political way, but um, I just found a lot of joy and um, the the characters, um, the, the people that that are portrayed, particularly the women, um, they're they're really great. Um, the way that they speak. Um, there's that one really great scene, sort of in the middle of the film, whenever they get in a fight, <laughs> uh, two of the women do, um, but um, it, it's. It's difficult because um, while whenever I was growing up there, and and even to this day, coal mining is still a thing, um, sort of that era of um, organizing the um, labor conflicts, you know, that was really before my time, and I just kind of grew up in a little bit different Appalachia, and that was more of my grandparents' um, era, so, um, you know, it's always good to connect with that. Um, I appreciated how the, the film is very conscious Mm -hmm. of the history as well, particularly with, um, it talks a lot about what happened in Harlan in the thirties, um, which was quite a bit more eventful than what, um, the conflict is that's portrayed in the film. Um, so, um, I don't know. I thought it was, I thought it was really good. Um. I didn't enjoy Norma Ray quite as much as as Harlan County, but um, but I thought they were both did um, great work with whatever they with what they were um, intending to do.
0: You mentioned the 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 women. I think especially in Harlan County, you're I think that the 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 intensity and just the passion that these women have is is incredibly striking and, and at times just. Uh, and just deeply moving, and just the courage they have, and you can feel probably that watching that had to of um, had some effect on on Sally Field as she as she plays Dormeray and kind of portrays this this figurehead. Uh, in in this movement um i'm curious if if, if you guys or what, what you guys made of her performance as, as kind of the person who's even though you have ruben there as the labor activist i mean she she very much becomes the face of this movement um nathan i mean watching watching the, the Norma ray what, what did you make of sally field's performance compared to after especially after you watched uh these women the actual these actual women kind of in the movement uh in harlan county
1: Well, it's very interesting because, uh, you know, the contrast is obviously that Norma Ray is working in the factory um, and the women in Harlan County are so invested in the the struggle um, because... All the men in their lives work in the mines, um, so it's it's a little bit you know um, kind of different positions. Um, at the same time, though, the the circumstances are also um, just of like the particular legal, labor struggles. I mean, you see a very kind of clear difference here and like in these different kinds of organizing, you know that Harlan County, that the struggle is so often, you know, um, about to explode into, into violence. Um, and Norma Ray never really quite reaches that point. Um, but you see like, you know, um, the women in Harlan County, like ready to, you know, like fucking lay down their lives and like put their bodies on the line um there's like that great
2: moment where the woman pulls the like the pistol out of her shirt like at the union meeting
1: (laughs) you know and it's just this like absolutely like you know you said courage zach you know this just like ferocious like dedication and that is i think the thing about um both of these movies, I think, you know, you, you, Zach, you mentioned the sort of the critic who talked about this longing and Michael, you sort of expanded on that. And, you know, I think that both of these movies do have this sort of like, you know, coming out in the seventies when like it is already, I feel like at that point kind of becoming rare, you know, these stories are becoming rare, you know, in the South in Appalachia of this kind of labor movement. Um, it's very weird now for me being somebody who grew up in the South i.e. not around or aware really of like labor or unions at all um being in living in new york city now where labor is still deeply entrenched you know where it is a still a very powerful thing um and the culture is just totally different and you know it's and it's like sad now to see the sort of the the devotion that um that these people had to, to organizing to solidarity, you know, to, to, to building this, this, um, You know, power through the people, um, you know, that that has been totally systematically dismantled is like so fucking heartbreaking to me. Um, So, watching both of these movies, you know, there is that nostalgia, I think, you know, that there, and I think that knowledge that this is kind of like becoming a rarer and rarer thing. Now, I do think, on the other hand, um, we can sit and talk about how sad it is to watch this now, but on the other hand, we also, you know, are kind of living in a moment where um, the consciousness is rising once again. Uh, about, about organizing and about labor, maybe not in every sector, but, you know, you've had all these teacher strikes recently. Um, you know, just over the weekend, um, there was a striking, there were striking workers at, um, a grocery store chain in Maryland. Um, I last year, I, you know, I am like fucking cried at both of these movies because I am a sucker for, for union related, Uh, cinema ever since joining a union last year and going on strike and like being on the picket lines, you know, I don't know, man, I'm just like such a sucker for like anything lefty uh, at all about solidarity. And, and um, so like, I really immensely enjoyed this double feature for that reason. Um, But I think anyway, I've been kind of like getting off topic, but uh, (laughs) I had a lot of (laughs) I don't know, I just had a lot of intense feelings um, watching both of these movies and I think it's Norma Rae In contrast, the difference, you know, the difference is, is I feel like you are, there's a lot of context and history in Harlan County, but I feel like you sort of get the, the kind of the culture clash in Norma Ray a little bit more, you know, between the, the, the Jewish organizer from New York, you know, and Sally Field's character. Like, I think that stuff is sort of present in Harlan County, um, but is not quite so like, you're not quite so aware of it because this is like focusing specifically on a relationship between two characters you're kind of aware of that more and I think that's like I don't know it's very interesting because so much of the kind of what's the the narrative that's been pushed to break labor down is like you know to kind of divide people based on you know class and, and based on region you know to say like oh you're from New York you're from the south like you have nothing in common you know you're Jewish you're you're gentile you have nothing in common you can't build solidarity um but like you know, we're all workers, we're all laborers, like we totally can, not to wax on my soapbox too much, but one of the, something that I will never forget in my own life was, was last year when, when, uh, um, I was in the grad workers union at Columbia who were going on strike, um, and are still not, uh, still have, still not successfully, uh, bargained their contract with Columbia. That's still ongoing. Um, but we went on strike and, and, um, as we were sort of on the picket lines, as somebody was giving a speech, I heard this cheer from the back of the crowd and all these um, construction guys from one of the um, construction local unions um, had come by on their lunch break to like express their solidarity and to come, you know, um, you know, give their support and to, to stand with us on the picket line. So I feel like that is the thing, you know, is like um, that, these movies kind of both show that potential for like building solidarity between race, you know, kind of race plays a role in both of these movies between gender, you know, between region and, and different classes um, that, you know, that we're all workers at the end of the day. So that's kind of what I really loved about both of these movies. Um, I'll stop talking now. I'm so sorry. Um... No,
0: no, no, you're fine. You hit on a, on a point that I kind of wanted to use to especially kind of tie the two films together. And that is, and that's, uh, how both are using race or portraying race in their in the films there's actually a piece that uh in the atlantic that came out like a little over a month ago called 40 years ago norma ray understood how corporations weaponized race and it it talks a little bit about um how the film you know showed how solidarity between black and white workers was kind of a way that that uh You know they were targeted to undermine the power of labor unions, and it's it's interesting to think of race in both of these movies. Um, You see, you have a couple black uh, workers in Harlan County who they talk to, um, but I don't know if you get that picture profoundly and, and norma ray you you see a lot more uh of them because you, you definitely you, you know when they start when she starts to kind of develop the union there um you have a, pre- a, a predominantly black base that is is starting to uh to follow her uh in that fight
1: there's that guy who like almost gets lynched you know at one point. Yeah. Um, so it's like su- super explicit about it in a way that Harlan County just sort of like they make jokes about like there being w- like one or two black guys in the room and like, it, you know, everybody seems on good terms, but it's just sort of like there and not really. Yeah, to me,
0: is that I mean, it seems like that it seems like uh, you all picked up on that kind of the same as, as I did, just kind of watching the, both of those. And I do know that was something that I was thinking about is how both films, um, especially Harlan County, which I, I I'll be honest, I really love that movie, but it, do, it it does kind of marginalize um. The, the the african-american worker base you know it just doesn't feel like they're as prominent and I think norma Ray does a, a little bit better job of of kind of breeding that diversity through uh through the narrative but I'm curious what you all thought of how how both portrayed race
2: i I also thought um I mean I liked uh, Harlan county better of the two movies but I thought norma Ray um one thing it did better is kind of like what you're saying is how um I mean Nathan you're talking about solidarity but Norma Ray really shows, like, the um, the uh, labor that gets put into solidarity, right? Whereas in Harlan County, you kind of see a united front in a sense. Um, Norma Ray, you see the the coalition have to build, and one of the things they have to get over is, like, this intentional, uh, you know, race baiting and, and uh, things that the company uses to try to, um, you know, break up the the union. And, I mean, like, you know, to... Bring it back to my own experiences. I mean, I mean, race plays pretty heavily into education, and especially in like a city county environment where I'm a uh, teaching. You know, there's a huge ideological split between you know teachers out in the county versus teachers in the city, just based on like the uh, um, you know the student populations and, and things like that. And uh, you know, a lot of it's kind of a lot of it's kind of coded, but a lot of the um, you know. Uh, controversy surrounding you know labor or even how we serve students are kind of follow along racial lines a lot and uh you know i, I would say like you know there's definitely like a, a a black base as far as the knox county uh teachers union support goes um and i think norma ray dramatized how that sort of thing uh is often weaponized um a lot better than Harlan County did.
0: Definitely. Yeah, um I kind of want to shift over to Harlan County a little bit more uh, real quickly. Like I mentioned before, Barbara Koppel directs it, uh, and it follows the labor tension in the coal mining industry. Uh, She films a strike in rural Kentucky. After the coal miners at the Brookside Mine join a union, the owners refuse the labor contract. Once the miners start to strike, the owners of the mine respond by hiring scabs to fill the jobs of the regular employees. The strike, which lasts more than a year, frequently becomes violent with guns produced on both sides, and one miner is is even killed in a conflict. Koppel began the project documenting a union reform movement called Miners for Democracy that hoped to oust President Tony Boyle from the United Mine Workers of America, but she was sidetracked when the Harlan County, Kentucky strike looked like a better story. Koppel said that she, her crew, and the Brookside coal miners they uh, stayed with had to arm themselves to ward off coal company, uh, quote, gun thugs during the time they spent in Brookside. Later, when Koppel returned to Harlan County to screen the finished film, local authorities protected her and the film with armed guards. Couple revealed on the commentary track of the Criterion Collections DVD reissue of the film that throughout the filming, she and the crew referred to the project as the Miner's film. Local and national distributors for Harlan County, USA denied that Duke Power Company had anything to do with the film's opening being postponed in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is the hometown of Duke Power. The reason for the delay, the distributor said, was the, quote, longer than anticipated success of Rocky and Smokey and the Bandit. Um, The New York Times said in 1976 that the film is entirely partisan considering that the company's refusal to sign a contract was condemned by the National Labor Relations Board as a pretext not to recognize the union and considering that the film itself is forthrightly an effort to see the struggle through the miner's own eyes this is no real drawback Variety in 1976 said there is much emphasis on the predictable elements which give the pick the impact of a carefully plotted fiction feature actual strike events are fleshed out with vintage film and stills of mining conditions over the years, of previous labor battles, and of current living and dying conditions in the industry. The stars of the film are the men and women of Harlan County, portrayed here not as patronized mountain folks, but as human beings. And in 2006, revisiting the film, Roger Ebert said the film retains all of its power in the story of a miner strike in Kentucky, where the company employed armed goons to escort scabs into the mines, and the most effective picketers were the miners' wives, articulate, indomitable, Courageous. Um, the thing I kind of wanted to start with with Harlan County is is actually um, I feel like more adjacent to the actual. Um what's actually happening in the film. And I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about the use of music in it. Um, I was thinking a lot about that while watching the movie, but uh, it it was kind of an interesting contrast between Norma Ray, which has this kind of theme song that seems much more traditional Hollywood theme, but tries to incorporate kind of similar uh, folksy lyrics into it uh, while Harlan County like truly evokes um, like pure Appalachian folk and, and it is very uh, and, and it is politicized in that way. I mean, what did you all make of, of the way that Koppel kind of intertwines that folk music into uh, almost these montages of the of the miners working and, and picketing?
1: I um, really appreciated it because, you know, it, it's really that, that form of singing is this, you know, sort of narrative storytelling, you know, this kind of living history. And so you at one point, I remember there's a song that directly mentions, um, Uh, Joseph Jock Yablonski, the the labor leader who dies in the film, Um, as you're seeing footage of him, you know, like shaking people's hands. So it's, you know, really shows the sort of the way that the culture, you know, Appalachian culture kind of operates, where you have these like songs almost as sort of newsreels, you know, kind of communicating information, um, expressing this viewpoint. Um, So I think it's really interesting because it's a really – I think good counterpoint to the use of the like archival footage to sort of construct this history. You know, it's, it's really complementing that through the songs. I think.
2: One of the things you mentioned, like uh, the songs as newsreels, um, uh, which I I agree with and think is really interesting. Um, And one of the things I found was interesting in this movie um, is the uh, like, just the presence of a community uh, locations where people come and that's how uh, the kind of solidarity of the, you know, the movement is distributed. And I, I you know, I don't know, like, you I know, mean, maybe I'm, maybe I have like a, a you know, too much of a, a narrow view here, just living in, in Knoxville and not like, you know, you know, a, a rural area. But I, you know, going, I, I, I do feel like that there's perhaps like in the intervening years, like, that element of these like kind of communal spaces and music being one of those communal spaces has been, been eroded in in some way, you know, maybe like, you know, mass media has done that, you know, maybe like, you know, the interstate system or, you know, different things, but like the way that these communities interact in this movie, uh, I don't know. I mean, I use the word nostalgic already, but like, it does feel like of a bygone era that that is how news disseminates is through these kind of oral, you know, passing of, of word, you know, as opposed to now where you would, you know, get on, you know, Facebook or you have, you know, a, you know, you know, news via like television and, and I mean, television's in this movie, but that's, that's not kind of where the heart and soul of, of this is where, um, at least I feel like when I interact with people now, it's always through that kind of media lens rather than the communal meetings, except for, um, you know, the kind of same organizations that have always existed where it is only the most politically-minded people who go to these meetings in the present day. Maybe, maybe again, maybe I have a rose-colored glasses on this just based on the movie's perspective, but that in the movie seemed, like, really important as, like, a, at least part of the period of the movie as well.
1: Well, I think that... Um... Just if I can hop in real quick, I think that you know you sort of see a like dual sort of as labor has been systematically eroded in the United States, you know, sort of loss of public communal spaces too, because that's something that unions often provided, you know, the Union Hall, you know, is was, yeah. you know. Well, I remember growing up and like, we'd have like Boy Scout
2: meetings. In yeah, the Union Hall you know, you know, yeah,
1: you know, yeah, I, I have kind of similar memories. And, and, you know, it's this sort of like, You know, it's like the sort of the like veterans uh, hall, you know, it's also sort of like, you know, this old type of public space that has sort of disappeared. Um, And so I think it's sort of a dual thing. You know, it's like unions provided that sort of public good and it's vanished and now there are no public spaces. (laughs)
0: And and it feels like this almost pure version of democracy. You know, when the when the men and women of the of the union are are sitting there having their discussion, it's heated, and you know, there's there's exchanges of words, but it's all it feels like everybody is kind of on the same page. It's all of one mind. They're just kind of hashing out uh, the different emotions that kind of come with it. Um, Ash Hagan. I'm curious. I know Hagan, you mentioned it a little bit, the kind of community um, aspect of Harlan County, but I'm curious, both of you, what you all made of uh, the, the kind of community that's portrayed throughout this film uh, as it's kind of documenting the story.
3: I don't know. Whenever the movie was over, I sort of said like, I feel like I understand my grandparents better now because um, I I have my grandfather's from Harlan County and um, my both my grandparents were raised in like really, you know, rural parts of the country. My grandfather in Harlan County and my grandmother in um, rural Tennessee. And, you know, as I was watching, like I felt like, you know, like i knew these people kind of as hagen was saying like i i'd sort of like know these personas um you know have grown up around them and um like it it just sort of like was sort of this wild experience of like glimpsing into um a community that like my older family members probably would have known and um yeah i mean it was really endearing and um you know comical at times when uh, I you know, what Hagen was saying earlier about when the women get into the fight in the middle of the um, film. And, um, yeah, I think it's sort of important as a whole. And I think that if we're comparing to Norma Ray, like, that's one of the things that I, I think that Norma Ray doesn't do so well is just, like, capture this, like, spirit of community and, like, the, you know, I think the, you know, Norma Ray like, attempts at that and, you know, does what it needs to do and, you know, does a, you know, good job overall, but, um, like, clearly, like, this can, com- like, there's no one character in Harlan County, USA. It's literally just, like, the people of Harlan County and, like, it's it's like this ensemble of people rather than like one hero you know saving the whole town and um which you know for a a narrative film like it it makes sense that we need our protagonist and in our supporting characters but um I really enjoyed the the in Harlan County USA getting like a whole slew of people that made up this community and like made this happen for themselves.
1: That's um, one of the things that I really liked too about it, Ash. You know, it's like, doesn't really, you know, everybody is still sort of at a kind of distance from us and there's almost sort of anonymous, like not fully introduced. And, you know, sometimes like we mostly don't have people's names maybe, um, but we get a really still like clear sense of who they are just through like their actions. And it's sort of, you know, really a movement built through people where norma ray is just like you said you know just kind of individuals um so there's something i don't know that's much more radical to me about harlan county for that reason um and f- much more reflective of the labor movement yeah i feel like the
2: when i think of uh, when i think of norma ray the kind of key image that i imagine is uh, norma and the the uh the union instigator from from new york Ruben, um alone in like that um, like like Ruben's hotel room right I feel like there's a lot of scenes where they're just kind of alone like hashing out like their plans and then you get like kind of these token scenes of the factory whereas Harlan County like you don't see you know whatever uh, leaders it's almost a leaderless movement and because the kind of key scenes in that movie are these acts of uh, or these scenes of collective action you know where they're blocking the road or they're um you know collectively in the hall where there's no one person it seems leading the discussion but they're all kind of like talking in in this like uh, in like kind of like almost like a web um and i, I feel like to get at the differences between the two movies is kind of between those two images of where does the organizing happen is it these kind of two isolated characters in a in a room by themselves or is it in these like writhing alive uh public space a
4: few notes about the the music um, one is that oh, I was really glad that they included the "Who Side Are You On" song because it's super, it's really famous. Um, but two is the scene whenever there is the successful blockade, um, the the women are singing this. Uh, I don't know how old it is, but it's certainly a Christian song about like you know we shall not be moved uh, that song. And um, a connection I saw between the the two films is that. Um, I'm always really interested whenever um, workers' rights or um, some sort of uh, social justice is conceived of as um, sort of like a religious destiny. Um, I guess they would, some people would call this like liberation theology, but um, I know that back in the 30s in the Harlan County riots, um, you know, they had, like, um, groups coming, a group come in, and I think they called them the Wobblies, but they were, like, explicitly communists. And, uh, you know, and they were like, you know, you all got to, you know, cut this shit out. And, of course, you know, these people, it's like, you know, they're, um, it's particularly in the South, um, and that's the point I want to get to, you know, it's their um, solace in, in a lot of ways. And so I found it interesting in Harlan, in Harlan County whenever they um, start singing this Christian song. And then these, um, I thought, really sort of um, strange moments in Norma Ray, like whenever she um, – well, the, f- the first time you encounter it is whenever they have the first meeting at the church. And um, the, the organizer character, um, I forget his name, actually delivers – a sermon, and, and they um, and they always want to to meet in the church. And he has something that I don't know if it's a Bible or what sort of large book that he has. Um, but um, and then later she goes up to the pastor and it's like, you know, I want to have um, a meeting here. And he's like, well, no. And she, I and I think she effectively leaves the church. And I just found this a really um, interesting subject. And I and I don't know if it's um, particular to the South in America. Um, I know that, um, in South America, they certainly had, um, success with that, um, line of thought, but anyway, it's just a connection that I'm
2: That, um, interaction with the, the pastor, um, remembering it, that falls along race, right? So it's, it's more that the, the solidarity with, you know, the, the African-American workers than like the movement itself. Am I remembering that right from the movie that that's the grounds on which the pastor kind of rejects her?
3: Yeah. She says something like that's, that's black people and white people sitting together. She like makes that clause to her request. And he's like, nah, yeah. that's close to blasphemy or something mm-hmm. like that.
2: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which I thought was really interesting. And again, like that's a hard back on a point we've already made, but you know, the thing I think that Norma Ray does a lot better is it shows, I guess it shows more like the community resistance to these sorts of things and the fault lines that these follow along. Um, and I thought that was like a really interesting scene, um, you know, to show like, you know, what is it that, uh, you know, gets exploited as, you know, to underline, undermine labor and, you know, obviously um, race, but also the um, like religion, um, the way that religion intersects those fault lines is really interesting because at some points, you know, the Christian church is really, uh, throwing its, its uh, uh, power, you know, communal power behind this, whereas other times it, you know, explicitly refuses that. Um, and uh, I don't know, I, you know, I always bring it back to my own personal experience as well, but that's something that's, you know, really struck me um, as well as which, uh, which causes get the, you know, the, the church to come out and throw their weight around um, and that makes a huge difference as far as what those, you know, what, what ends up actually happening.
0: Any kind of final thoughts on both movies before we wrap up? I'm curious, kind of, I guess, maybe as a good conclusion piece. Um, it, I think, uh, Michael, you mentioned it a little bit early on, but uh, I, I kind of want to close out by relating what we what was kind of portrayed in this in these both of these movies and to kind of the, like Nathan, you alluded to the, the kind of rising, uh, movement that that's kind of happening now. And I'm curious how, uh, we've talked about the the effectiveness of like the public space and, and, and how that's kind of shifted to a more digital space today. I mean, we're, we any of you kind of thinking about that while watching both of these movies?
2: I certainly was, uh, one of the things that's interesting, um, and kind of falls along a lot of these like community fault lines that I was talking about earlier is in Tennessee, at least for teachers, um, the law prohibits teachers to strike, um, which makes it a really interesting, it's really interesting to see then how do teachers manifest their, uh, kind of work grievances. And obviously like it was illegal for the teachers to strike in West Virginia last year when they did that too, but they still did. And so obviously this doesn't really prohibit teachers from striking, but I think that like, a lot of the pressure that would move toward like, you know, kind of traditional labor movement, you know, among teachers where I recognize the public space where this organization happens is more toward uh through uh, political meetings. So like um the uh county commission meetings in Knox County, uh, since that's where the school board uh is funded through. Um and then the uh actual school board meetings themselves um those have honestly been where I've seen the most like uh, organization and activism. And I think partially um, because of the, you know, the kind of uh, undermining of of the labor movement uh, and and specifically teachers, because that's what I'm familiar with. um, I've kind of seen that, that shift toward like, you know, the, that, you know, uh, kind of rowdiness and that like democracy, you know, uh, or whatever you said, like pure democracy or whatever has, taken the form of like, you know, this kind of government sanctioned forum, you know, every week within the, you know, the school board meetings or the, the county commission meetings, which in some ways feels kind of neutered because it's like we, you go there, you say your piece and then you leave. Um, but in other ways, it's interesting because you also have the, uh, you know, the, the community leaders, uh, like, you know, school board members or, or whatnot, county commissioners, in the room with you and so you see uh you know whatever whatever the kind of like you know civil uh you know political you know uh you know uh, meeting version of that truck blocking happen sometimes too which is is interesting
1: you know zach i um wasn't exactly thinking tons necessarily about like kind of any change from like physical to digital spaces. But I will say, you know, um, the thing is, is um, one thing we didn't even really get to talk about, which I think is very interesting about Norma Ray is how early in the film she gets present promoted into this sort of managerial position where she's basically like spying on the workers. Um, and as she's sort of, you know, getting more and more interested in the idea of the union, you know, eventually quits that position and goes back to just like working on the floor of the factory. Um, but uh, you know, that's the thing is like, there are a lot of ways in which um you know kind of digital technologies and spaces allow for a lot more um new ways to organize you know um there is there is you know a growing you know um rise i feel like of, of you know labor organizing and new kinds of political organizing on the left that are largely aided by um different you know digital social platforms or whatever but on the other hand you know um Kind of the suppression of labor is predicated on surveillance and alienation, and digital technology is really good at both of those things. So now you have more ways for, for the owner class to spy on workers and keep them in their place and keep them divided from one another. So you have kind of, you know, it's a double-edged sword like, like everything is. But I will say one thing that I was really thinking about, especially while watching Harlan County, is, you know, just like how much labor has been written out of american history you know how little did we all learn about unions in school in, in public you know school or, or you know in history class or whatever you know a little bit i i learned a little bit but it was not at all the focus i feel like that it should have been you know labor has been a crucial part of the us and the south um, and people you know died people shed blood and made huge sacrifices so we could have weekends, you know, so we could have certain rights as workers and laborers. Um, And people are still, you know, risking uh, that today. Um, And so we like, you know, it's so vital that, you know, a film like Harlan County exists to really document this, um, because it's something that you know, they don't want us to remember that they, they want us to forget, um, the, the, the radical, you know, seeds that were sowed throughout, you know, communities in the South, rural communities, poor communities, working class communities, you know, you see such intelligence here, such capacity for discourse and for, for organizing and for, for, um, direct action, you know, so workers really do have power. And I feel like Harlan County is a true testament to that, um, so
2: I, I definitely feel like it's written out of history, you know, and I think it's, you know, wild. Uh, and and I, I think, you know, one of the things, um, you know, mass media does is kind of erase history as well, because it, you know, homogenizes American culture. You know, I would say that like the, um, you know, it was almost a novelty, for example, when like, uh, you know, in the early 2000s, uh, you had like um oh brother where art thou using a lot of the songs which actually do appear in uh harlan county you know it's kind of like this folk music it's like quaint and like oh look at these this bygone era and like you know in just the span of a few decades i feel like that the you know the kind of ambient uh cultural music of like this appalachia has been kind of remade in a way that uh does kind of erase some of the some of the history of it um and uh also I think makes it just kind of, uh, kind of cute. You know, we take, we take labor day, like every, uh, every year. Um, and it's like, you know, growing up, I had no idea what that was. I, for a while I had like kind of a misconception that it was, uh, about, um, women giving birth. Um, and, but I, 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 I feel like, you know, we take labor day and, it's not the same as the other holidays um you know except for maybe like memorial day where it's it's just kind of this mysterious holiday that we get off every year and people are like hey labor day we'll go to the, the beach or whatever um and it's just wild how quickly that's uh that's been eroded i will also say on the on the digital surveillance uh, one last anecdote um but uh last year i guess or maybe two years ago there was a really contentious um school board decision about, like, where funding was going to go in Knox County, um, and, uh, so there were a lot of teachers kind of, like, uh, mobilizing for, like, you know, emailing or, or calling the, uh, the board members and the county commissioners, uh, and the, uh, the superintendent of the schools, like, sent out a, uh, message, like, the day before the school board meeting, like, saying, like, hello, we would like to remind everyone that you are not to use, um, you know, school hours, even during your break to, you know, engage in political activity of any kind, you know, which is basically implying that they had noticed the influx of digital communication over, you know, that period and had to then like, you know, kind of come in and finger wag about, uh, you know, how we used you know our, our time
0: well i believe that will wrap up uh you know we'll wrap up on this on that note because i think that was uh very well said by both of you um <laughs> i'm
1: so sorry that i love to talk about labor
0: <laughs> no 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 you're fine it, it was no it was good um well, uh, it was. It's one of those we need, like the Patreon exclusive, where we just kind of keep going. I know, dude. <laughs> we
1: just need the like union cast, where I just fucking get to talk about. I just get to cry about solidarity between workers. Um, Patrons, and, email
0: us. We can we can make that happen
1: as an exclusive yeah, to you guys. Give me money and let me cry to you about <laughs> the power of the people. The union united will never be defeated.
0: Well, if you want to join the uh, the Cinematary Union, you can follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Cinematary, on Twitter at handle at Cinematary, and on Letterboxd at letterboxcom slash Cinematary, where we post all the movies that we talked about in this episode. We'd also like to take this time to... Uh, to you know, give a shout out to our patrons. Um, I'm going to kill time as I try to pull up this uh, sheet that I should have pulled up ahead of time but luckily I'm just really really good at uh, rambling and keeping this going uh, so a big thanks to our patrons Cam, Chad Newsom, Christopher Metcalf Maggie, Matthew Lingo, Ron Hayes Tyler Chandler and Whitney Rio Ross we appreciate your patronage and we hope more people will uh, continue to support um, Cinematary and support the writers. I know uh, like I said last week, it's 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 not a giant contribution that we're giving back, but I know every person who has written something so far under since we've started the Patreon has been you know in, kind of grateful just for a little bit of something to say thank you for your work and your dedication and your passion. So we really appreciate it, and we hope more people uh, will kind of join join along. Um, Next week we're going to be continuing this series with the with 1985's the color purple and 2018's Hale County this morning this evening um, we're, we're getting close to the end of this but, and so be sure to check out the backlog we've got some really good episodes so far we've been really ex- uh, happy and, and satisfied with how this series has turned out I think it's been one of our richest ones yet and if you again going back to the Patreon if you have not uh, joined Patreon we have some nice um, add ons for people who have listened to previous episodes on Deliverance and Hillbilly and Wise. Blood as uh we've uh, we've we have kind of additions to that as well so uh definitely check that out until next week thank you guys for listening